You did it. Congratulations, graduating seniors. I'm so proud of you. This has been such an unexpected season, but you've been handling it in some really awesome ways. And uh, I just want to say that, that this class is especially um, special to me and meaningful to me because it was four years ago when you all were freshmen that um, I came here to Cedar Mill. So it's just so nostalgic to see you kind of grow up and move into this next phase. So as I am so excited to see you move into this next phase, I'm also grieving because it just won't be the same without you. I'm going to miss you so much. Um, and before uh, we jump into the message, I just want to give you seniors a message. And it's, it's a Hebrew blessing that I want to speak over you. And it goes like this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the whole concept is this, may you in this next season follow Jesus so closely, may you be in such close proximity with him that the dust that is trailing behind Jesus is actually evident on you. And in this next season, may you um, live out Jesus's prayer that, um, that heaven would come to earth. And um, before we jump into the message, let me, let me pray for you um, and let me speak this blessing over you. May you in this next season be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this graduating class. Um, I believe that you're doing a work in them that is very unique with these interesting circumstances. I pray that, that these are the things that actually strengthen them and um, give them that just set them on the path for this new trajectory that you're sending them into, whether they're going into um, college, but whether that's uh, a community college or whether that's a university or they're going into the workforce or whatever is next for them, God. I just pray that, that you would gift them and position them specifically to do your work and um, to just remain unchanging as they pursue you. God, as they experience challenges and difficulties, may they always come back to the fact that, that you are with them and that they will, as soon as they turn around, you are there with them, guiding them, leading them. God, be with them in this next season. We love you. Thank you for loving our seniors the way that you have and been so gracious to them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Awesome. As we dive into um, chapter four of the series in Daniel that, we, that we've been going through, um, I just kind of want to set the scene, set the stage up so that you kind of get a feel for what the story has been like up until this point. So Daniel, he had lost his home. He, he was drug away into captivity. He was living with a few spiritual friends and, and they had been through kind of this indoctrination process. Like they were being forced into a new way of life in hopes to reframe the way that they think. There was an attempt to change everything about Daniel at this time. They wanted to change his name, his identity, his education, his religious loyalty. And it's in the midst of that moment that Daniel and his friends, his companions, were caused to learn how to live faithfully, to keep their God-honoring convictions among an opposing lifestyle and worldview that was all around them. So they were tasked with differentiating themselves creatively. Let me say that is a very difficult task when everyone around you is pursuing a different way of life. Um, and they, they were differentiating themselves creatively, not by secluding themselves from society, saying, I want nothing to do with society, and also not by assimilating with the, with the current culture. They lived so distinctly and so creatively that Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler at the time, was actually being affected by kind of the uproar that they were causing by being faithful. And he started to ask questions about God. And we see that Nebuchadnezzar was many times religiously inspired, but not thoroughly transformed. 
um, Nebuchadnezzar, he sees God show up, and as time passes, he begins to drift away. The habit of his heart were a lot stronger than momentary inspiration up until this point in the story. If you have your Bible, go ahead and pull that out and turn to Daniel chapter four. And for the sake of time, we won't be reading through the whole story. So I I challenge you, read this story that sometime this week, it's an amazing story, but I'm gonna summarize it for the sake of time. And then we're gonna pull some of those texts and truths into our lives for what it means for us today. This chapter is written not from the perspective of Daniel. It's actually written from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the ruler, the emperor of this time. And this chapter is an account of Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. We know he's already had one up to this point. Um, Something like this has happened, but there's another dream that is just haunting this guy. He has a nightmare that he just can't shake. He just can't get it out of his mind. And let me paint the picture for you. This is the dream. There was an image of a flourishing tree. Picture that image, huge flourishing tree that grew to be insanely large. It was beautiful. It was flourishing. It was producing fruit. Beasts lived under it and birds made their home in the branches. And Nebuchadnezzar then saw in this dream, he saw a holy one come down from heaven and chop down the beautiful tree. Chopped it down, lopped off the branches, scattered the fruit, And the Holy One says to leave the stump and let the tree be covered in the dew of heaven and let it lose the mind of a man and be given the mind of a beast. Very, very kind of interesting dream here. This dream left Nebuchadnezzar shaking in his boots. He was terrified. So, of course, he wants somebody to come and interpret this dream. Once again, Daniel is tasked with interpreting his dream and speaking through this nightmare. Wishing the message weren't true, but having to be honest, he breaks the hard news to the king. He basically says this, just as your kingdom has grown, this tree is is large, it's big. And just like the tree is being cut down, your kingdom will be cut down. And just like the dewy grass, you will be made like an animal to eat the grass. And this is what Daniel's encouragement to Nebuchadnezzar is. In Daniel chapter four, verse 27, he says this, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. In other words, man, don't be mad. Let me counsel you. Here's a word I have for you. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And then I want you to turn just, Another, skip a verse, go to verse 29. Listen to what happens. At the end of 12 months, so it took him an entire year. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is this not the great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So he's basically like, yeah, I'm pretty much a boss. I'm, I'm awesome. And while these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. So he's saying this and all of a sudden a voice from heaven comes and here's what the voice says. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled. Like right away, He's saying this, he's basically saying, I'm awesome. A word comes, immediately 
the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. That is insane. That happened. So today we're going to talk about two different things. We're talking about the realities of pride and the heart of God. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write that down. The realities of pride and the heart of God. I love how William Hazlitt famously puts it. He says, pride erects a little kingdom of its own and acts as sovereign in it. Raises up a little kingdom and says, yes, I am the king of this. And this is what we see Nebuchadnezzar doing. And it is what we are so tempted to do in this life. It's pride when we attempt to build and sustain life apart from God. That is what spoils Nebuchadnezzar. That is what ruins his heart. And it's what haunts his sleep ultimately. And I want to call out real quick, Two realities of pride that we see in this passage that we need to consider for ourselves. The first one is this. Pride grows when we think our gifts were earned in this life. We see this mentality in verse 30. So he had had this dream, he had it interpreted, and he's walking around on this palace roof, and he's like, is not this great Babylon which I have built? Like by my mighty power as a residence for the glory of my majesty. He's like, dude, the, I've earned this. Nebuchadnezzar fully believed that the tall tree of his life was deserved because it was built on his own shoulders. It was his own doing. He didn't see his life situation as a gift, but an earned reality. As a right built and sustained by none other than himself. And this, my friends, is the fertilizer that causes pride to grow. When the blessings in our life are being viewed as a mere earned truth and not a blessed gift from God, we start growing our own little kingdom in this life. And when it comes to building our own kingdoms, we will quickly realize that we will never have enough. Nebuchadnezzar was in this place in life. Pride has no end. It's never satisfied. It's always left wanting more. And when you arrive at one kingdom, it's only a matter of time before you want another. It's captivating. It's a prison. This is why Alexander the Great found himself weeping and screaming out, there are no other worlds to conquer. And we, if we're being honest, we have more worlds to conquer. Like, and when it, because we do have more worlds to conquer, it's easy for us to maintain the myth that we can achieve a greater kingdom of our own. Like it's easy for pride to grow and we can maintain the myth that the blessings in this life are due to my labor and my hard work and not a gift from God himself. So Nebuchadnezzar, seemingly having control over everything, comes to this realization that he had control over nothing at all. He had control over nothing. At the end of the day, it was all a gift from God that he had not stewarded well. Isn't this such a sobering reality? Isn't this a truth that we're wrestling today in our cultural moment? A lot of the many kingdoms that were built for ourselves were threatened overnight. Things we thought we had control over, the things that we labored for, the things that we even thought that we earned and deserved and worked our way up towards were threatened, if not completely gone overnight. We are regularly given the message in this world that we have control that we are the captains of our own ships. If I've learned anything in the last few months, it's this, how little control I have in the world. Anybody else? Just go ahead and throw your hand up if you're like, I preach, I agree with that. A question that Nebuchadnezzar's story causes us to answer is this, where are you attempting to maintain the myth that you are in control? 
where are you maintaining the myth that you are in control in this life? Um, and, an, and a follow-up question is, what gifts are you tempted to see as something earned rather than a gift from God? What are the blessings that you're receiving right now that, that you're tempted to say, like, I earned this, and, and you're, you're having a hard time viewing that as a gift from God? The second truth we see about pride in this story is this. Pride grows when we imagine that we control the end. Pride grows when we imagine that we control the end. So think of this. It was one year from the time that God warned Nebuchadnezzar in this dream until the time that it was fulfilled. So it it was the space between God's warning and his fulfillment that Nebuchadnezzar began to believe that he had gained control. Like, dude, I got this. Like, nothing's happened yet. He started to believe that if God hadn't fulfilled this warning, then it probably won't happen at all. It's so easy to believe that that if I have been successful in building my life up to this point, I'm probably good. Like everything's probably fine. Or if I've been living this sinful life up to this point and I haven't been caught, I haven't been found out, everything's going good, then everything probably will be fine. I want you to keep that in mind for a second. And I want you to listen to what Peter has to say about this, 2 Peter, with the space between God's word and his fulfillment. Listen to this. Um, Chapter three, verses one through nine. He says, dear friends, this is my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he has promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on it on as it has ever since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Don't miss this part. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, there's a part of me that wants to sit in just this intimidating reality for a moment. And yet I think there's a need um, for a little bit of an explanation. So there are people who refuse to see the temporal aspects of the world in which we exist today. In other words, this, this moment is temporary in light of the eternal reality that Jesus is all about shepherding into this world. Meaning there will be a day when the wrong things are flipped upside down and, and things will be made right and things will be like what Tolkien said. He said, a day when sad things become untrue. I love that. There is a day coming when our God is going to make things right and there will be a judgment, but it won't be removed aside from the love of God. So so we need to acknowledge that God makes good on his promises. God comes through. When he says something, it might take a while, but it he comes through with it. His promises will come to pass. And for those who forget that reality, this passage is saying, man, you're in for a rude awakening. Don't forget God's promises. Why is there a delay between the warning and the fulfillment? The reason given here in, in 2 Peter is God's love and mercy 
Like God is not slow as some count slowness, but he is waiting. He is being patient that many might respond to his invitation of love. That is why we have such an emphasis here at Cedar Mill about making Jesus known. Like we want people to come to know Jesus and to respond to his love and grace and mercy by renouncing their kingdoms to pursue God's unfailing kingdom. Because it is a guarantee our kingdoms will fail. Jesus is never will. And the way this story ends is absolutely amazing. And, and I don't want you to miss it. It's actually a picture of what it looks like to actually respond to God's invitation, to renounce your own kingdom and to pursue God's kingdom, to destroy pride, your pride in life, and to fix your focus on God. And we see Nebuchadnezzar doing three different things as he responds. First off, in verse 34, it says, Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven. So here he is, long-haired, long claws, right? Lifts his eyes to heaven. And now all he had done up until this point is he's looked inward at himself this whole time, and he'd look outward at all of his achievements, standing on the Babylon palace. And, like, and finally, he ha- his vision has been raised. He lived through enough suffering brought on by himself that he was finally ready to raise his eye level, to fix his focus elsewhere. He finally responds to not see himself, but to see God as the center of the story. As he walks away from his pride, he actually finds freedom. He finally loses the heavy burden he had been carrying to become like God. I love what Jurgen Moltmann says. This quote is, is phenomenal. He says, In our modern society, human beings are apparently being turned into voracious monsters. They are tormented by the unquenchable thirst for life. The more they have, the more they, the more they want. So their appetite is endless and they can never be appeased. Why have people in our modern world become so perverted? Because both consciously and unconsciously, they're dominated by the fear of death. Their greed for life is really their fear of death, and their fear of death finds its expression in an unbridled hunger for more power. You only live once, we are told. You might miss out on something. This hunger for pleasure, for possessions, for power, for our thirst for recognition through success and admiration, that is the perversion of modern men and women. That is their godlessness. The person who loses God makes a God out of himself. And in this way, a human becomes a proud and unhappy mini-God. This is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. This is what we are so tempted um, to engage in with our, in ourselves. And the first response is Nebuchadnezzar giving up his position as a mini-God and lifting his eyes to God, this is when and where and how God's mercy breaks into our lives. We are invited into a mercy of taking our eyes off of ourselves, where, where there is always lack and putting our eyes on God where there is always, always, always abundance. The second thing that we see Nebuchadnezzar doing is this. He was restored. He was restored. God actually heals him, right? He turns into this beast and his mind was restored and he, he gives him back his sanity. He probably got a haircut and trimmed those talons, you know? And he went back into his position as a leader. He had what he had before, same gardens, same empire, but something was different. He had a new perspective. He lived from a new purpose. He saw his life as a gift and not as something that he had earned. And Tozer speaks about this concept when he's talking about Abraham being sent to sacrifice his son. And the same truth applies here. So Tozer said it like this, 
after this moment in Abraham's life, there was nothing in his life that was not committed to the Lord. He still had great wealth. He had flocks. He had possessions. He still had his son, Isaac. But I love this part here. He had everything, but he possessed nothing. Isn't that so rich? He had everything, but he possessed nothing. His grip was very light on temporal things, and it was tight on the eternal things. Everything, don't miss this, everything is safe which we commit to the Lord. Nothing is safe that is not committed to him. Friends, my plea for you today is to continue building God's kingdom by committing everything back to him. Jim Elliott says it perfectly. He says, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the third thing we see Nebuchadnezzar doing is this, and it's amazing. He praises God. He literally starts praising God. This dude that was his own God lifted his eyes, was restored, and he is now praising God. That's what it looks like to respond. Nebuchadnezzar, he had done wild and great evil, and God's stubborn grace was after Nebuchadnezzar's heart, just as it is for your heart. The present offering of God today is his mercy, and he's saying to you today, you personally, not your friend who you're thinking about. I'm talking about you. If you hear my voice, don't live in the shrinking cage of pride where you meet your own needs, but respond to and receive my great mercy, and I will exceed your needs. Jesus says, in my kingdom, I have got you. And like a child coming home, I will run out to greet you. And heaven is going to have a party because of your homecoming, because you are returning. And I think that we have two responses as a church family, a Cedar Mill, how we can respond to this as we kind of wrap it up. And I, I don't want you to miss it. If you've been tuning out, let, let's, let's refocus in right here. Renounce, this is the first one, renounce your kingdoms. What are the kingdoms that you need to renounce? What foundational or underlying kingdoms do you have in your life that you need to say, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I don't want to be a mini God anymore. Just like a house built on sand, our lives cannot be sustained the way we long it to be sustained on our own. Like Jesus is the only way. If you don't know this, our world is hurting right now, big time. It's been a heavy, heavy, heavy week. And there is nothing that can withhold the wind and the waves of this world like the solid foundation of Jesus. Nothing. Cedar Mill, lift your eyes up. Let's, let's allow God to begin his restoring work and let's worship him. Renounce your kingdoms, yes. But that's not the point here. We need to renounce our kingdoms so that we can pursue a life of building God's kingdom. If we're going to renounce our kingdom and fix our eyes on God and focus on his kingdom, what does that look like practically? I want to go back to the first verse that we started with. Uh, to Daniel's encouraged to Nebuchadnezzar, the beginning of this chapter, he said this, it was in verse 27. He said, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. And there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is what it looks like to build God's kingdom, showing mercy to the oppressed. This is what it looks like to renounce your kingdom. When you start lifting your eyes to God, you will soon come to realize that you are staring at the needs of others. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it, his paraphrase of this same verse. He says, so king, take my advice. Make a clean break with your sins and start living for others. Quit your wicked life and look around for the needs of the down and out. Then you will continue 
to have a good life. The good life is one of building God's kingdom. It's one of caring for the oppressed. It's one with lifted eyes on a kingdom that will never fail. Cedar Mill Bible Church, let's live a life with eyes lifted, the oppressed cared for, and God's kingdom in focus this week and for the short time that we're gifted with here on earth. Today is a gift. Let's utilize it the best. Let's steward it the best that we possibly can. I love you. I miss you guys so much. But we're going to transition in this time um, to a time of communion. Let me just say that communion is one of those times where we lift our eyes, where we fix our focus. So go ahead and grab the elements, whatever it is that you might have in your house. And I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to Dave to lead us into this moment.